about a month ago, I was asked to bring a, a to teach a message to our church body, and Mike let me choose the the text. And as I thought about it, I really wanted to go back to the gospel. And I don't know. I'm one of those guys who likes um, I like passages in the Bible that hit you hard. I don't know if you're like that or not, but passages like Revelation 20, when it speaks of the great white throne judgment, those were the those were passages that when I was when the Lord was drawing me, was really He used those to sober me up, to really think about life and death. What about Matthew 7? That's another one where he says, There will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and that in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. That's very terrifying. And then you had passages like in Matthew 13 where there's a treasure buried in a field. And a man is walking through that field and he finds that treasure. And because of the joy that was in him when he found it, he reburied it. He went and sold everything he had to go purchase that field. And the same thing was said about a, a man who finds a pearl of great price. He sells everything. And then you have Luke 12 where Jesus says, You should fear him who has the power to cast both soul and body in hell. Passages like that are what the Lord used to draw me and open my ears, renew my heart to understand and believe the true gospel. Well, if you're new here and you were expecting Mike to be here, come next week. He'll be here next week. Um, I know many of you have been praying for me too, so I thank you for your prayers. It is the prayers of the saints, right, that lift us all up. Um, I do want to kind of tie this in maybe a little bit to what Mike has been preaching in First uh, Peter. First Peter chapter 2. He ended the message last week, you remember, by saying, Suffering is the pathway to glory. And he used the example of our Lord Jesus, didn't he? where it says in verse 21, to this you've been called. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you've been called to suffering, just like our Lord did. It says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When I said today's message is going to be all about the gospel, and if you've already looked at what I'm going to be speaking on in Matthew 8, verses 34 to 38, you're going to see there's a call there to follow me, he says. Well, Peter also said, or Mike also said, Christian living will mean suffering. And Peter had a firsthand view of that, didn't he? He not only was there in the garden when the soldiers came to arrest Christ, and he saw the conflict there, and he was right in the middle of it, swinging his sword to fight for his Lord. He knew that there was hatred out there for Christ. He also had a first-hand view of it throughout the book of Acts. You read that, just the hostility against Christians. 
and he ultimately paid for that with his own life. We read in Fox's Book of Martyrs that he and his wife were crucified. And he kept telling her she was crucified first. And he kept telling her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And then he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he asked them to crucify him upside down. He says later in chapter 4, Peter does, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which is for your testing, as though some strange thing is happening to you. But to the degree you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Isn't that a unique way to look at suffering? To the degree you're suffering, rejoice. I love that. But make sure, he says, that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublemaker. Why? Because that finds no favor with God. You're getting what you deserve. But if you suffer unjustly by doing what's right, that does find favor with God. We even learned this last week in our flock groups in John 17, in verse 14, that the world hates us because we are not of the world, right? It's, it's, it's always been a conundrum to me why, why Christians receive such hatred from the world. We don't, we're not out there attacking. We're not out there causing conflicts. We're simply doing what John the Baptist said. It's not right for you to have your brother Philip's wife, right? We, we're out there calling people out on their sin and saying you must be reconciled to God. And they love their sin so much they'd rather kill you. They'd rather hate you. Remember that Mike quoted this at the very end of, towards the end of his ser- sermon. He said, it's coming. I believe you'll have to make choices in the future that will have physical ramifications. It's coming. He's not a prophet, nor is he the son of a prophet, but he's, he's simply saying what all Christians throughout all ages have believed. The Bible says it. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But the good news, what's the good news in all that? It's only a little while, right? What's your life? 60, 70, 80, 90 years maybe? It's a little while. Always be comparing the temporal with with the eternal. It helps us get a right perspective. It was Jonathan Edwards who said, May I stamp eternity on the inside of my eyelids. So you always view life through the lens of eternity. Well, what I want to share with you today will help us in this race, in this war called the Christian life, when it comes to enduring and when it comes to suffering. And ultimately, when it comes to our eternal destiny, we're going back to the gospel. And I've titled the message this, According to Jesus, the way to get life is to give up your life. And I've chosen Mark 8, 34 to 38 as our text to work through. Now, modern Christianity has a view of what it is, of what being a Christian is. And I'm sure you have your own idea of what a Christian is. But the real question we all have to ask is, is that what Christianity is according to our Lord Jesus? Well, let's find out. So there in your text, let's look at it. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
4, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So according to Jesus, Christianity is about self-denial, taking up your cross, and following him continually. This is one of the most important collection of verses in the entire Bible. Some have said this is the most radical call Jesus ever gave. You want to know what a true follower of Christ is? This is it. You want to know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is it. Examine all the gospel presentations that you've heard, that maybe you've even given, that you know. If it doesn't have these elements, these elements I just we just read, it's not the full gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, regarding this text, he said, Here is an offer. Here is a message. Here is the gospel which if men and women but believed it would deal with all their problems, and yet they won't look at it. They turn away from it. They despise it. What problems do you think he's referring to? Well, most certainly hell. But what about peace? What about contentment? How about purity. It'll deal with that too. We mentioned this earlier, but Jesus said in Matthew 7 that not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we need this message because there's a lot of self-deception out there. There's a lot of easy believism of people believing a watered-down gospel. We must be clear on this. So here's the context. Jesus is preparing to undertake his final journey to Jerusalem. His face is set there. His work in Galilee and the, and the provinces are, is nearly done, and what remained was for him to bear witness to the truth in and around the holy city. All things were beginning to point towards Calvary, where he will suffer many things and be killed, and after three days rise again. And that's not a path down easy street. That's a path of pain, suffering, death, and denial. Peter, in the the preceding context of this section, could not fathom being separated from his Lord, much less seeing him suffer and die. So Peter rebukes Jesus, takes him aside and rebukes him and says, this shall never happen to you, Lord. And in return, he gets rebuked by Jesus. And the thrust of Jesus' message to Peter is, you must set your mind on God's interests. Well, what is God's interests? Look at the context. Jesus says, there's a cross for me, and there's a cross for you. Mine is a cross of dying for sin. Yours is going to be a cross of dying to sin. If you are to associate with him, you must bear your cross, where you will die to self and follow after him. Now, let's get into the text. Verse 34. This really deserves a message of its own. And this will likely take up a good portion of our morning as we get into it. It's very foundational. Let's take a look at the crowd he's speaking to. Verse 34 says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. You see two groups there. 
really, really there's three groups. You have, you have the committed, genuine, self-denying followers of Christ. They're named disciples. Among the disciples, there was Judas, a counterfeit. And then we have the crowd. This, the crowd comprised the, uh, the Jewish residents who were in that area, in the area of Caesarea Philippi. They were curious. You re- read the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, and you're going to quickly find out that a large following gathered around him, followed him. He was doing miracles. No one had ever seen this before. He spoke with authority. He, was, he, he had a huge crowd always following his shirt tails. They wanted to observe what he does. They were unconverted and uncommitted, but they were curious nonetheless. Jesus speaks to all, the inside and the outside. He speaks to the committed and he speaks to the uncommitted. The genuine and the fake. And let's not forget Judas, the counterfeit. So he speaks this same message to all three groups. And his message is this. If you wish to follow me and submit to my lordship over your life and enter into new life with me, it will contain these elements. That of self-denial, taking up your cross, and by faith, continually following Christ in a personal commitment. That's Jesus' evangelistic message. For the committed, he's saying this. Stay the course. Right? Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Keep following me. That's the message to the committed. For the counterfeit, Judas, or anyone else who's a make-believer, the call is to cast away your self-deception and become a true follower of Jesus Christ. And for the crowd, the message is this. Become a follower. Is this what you wish? Do you wish to line up behind Christ and follow him? walking after him step by step to go where he goes. Make sure you count the cost. We'll get into that. So what they did in Jesus' day, this is the way it worked back then if you were living in first century Palestine, is a student would attach himself to a master teacher. A disciple literally is a learner. That's what the word disciple means, a learner. They receive teaching on life. And when the teacher went, they went. When he stopped, they stopped. And he just taught about life. And that's the picture Jesus gives when he says, if anyone wishes to come after me. He's inviting us to become his disciples. This is not a call to walk an aisle. It's not a call to raise your hand or sign a card. This was a call to be a follower of Christ day after day. The same call he gave back then, he gives now. Now, are there any conditions to this call? We have to ask that because the one calling you to follow after him is the one who gives the conditions. The followers don't get to choose the conditions by which you follow him, right? If you wish to line up behind him, these terms are non-negotiable. So this is the essence of saving faith and repentance. And Jesus gives three of them. Let's look at them. And by the way, Um, It's important to note, when you look at the context of this chapter, and even the previous chapters, Jesus was preparing the crowds and his disciples for what he's about to say. The previous feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and the subsequent basketfuls, you remember that? That That he communicated to them? Communicates to them that Jesus provides abundantly. 
your cup will overflow. The warnings about the leaven of the Pharisees, right? He said, he said be warned of, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. That communicated to the people that there's a dangerous system they must not fall prey to. Your souls are at stake. All right. How can my soul be saved? How do I become a true disciple of Jesus Christ? There in your notes, number one, he must deny himself. The word must is emphatic. No being a disciple without self-denial. This word deny means to refuse to associate yourself with someone else. To completely abandon someone. To utterly separate yourself from someone or something. Jesus used this word when he told Peter, you will deny me three times. And you remember Peter's words when he did actually deny him? He said, I don't know the man. That's denying someone. So how do you deny yourself? That's what we have to ask. This is the most difficult of denials. To come after Christ, you must disavow yourself of all things self. Your self-rights, self-control, self-will, self-ambitions, self-focus. A death to self must occur. You die to yourself. My life no longer belongs to me. I don't want to associate with myself anymore with this sin-condemned person. All I ever brought myself was hell. That's what you that's the mindset you come to. This is the first step in discipleship. It's like the opening kickoff in a game. That game can't begin without that kickoff. Well, there's no becoming a disciple without this first step. It's literally the first beatitude. If you go back to Matthew 5, poor in spirit. You begin there. You're poor in spirit. You look inward and all you see is bankruptcy. All you see is spiritual poverty. This is why the gate is narrow. It's hard to deny yourself. Think for a minute just how good you really think you are. How much you want your will. It's your way before all others. Well, Jesus is commanding here that he be first place, not you. Contrast uh, Luke 18 and Luke 19. In Luke 18, you have a rich young ruler. His heart was tied to his money. He refused to obey the Lord Jesus, and he wanted to hold on to his money and not follow Christ. Contrast that with Luke 19, where you have Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus didn't care about his money anymore. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. And what did Zacchaeus say in return? He said, I have given four times as much to those who I've, who I've defrauded. He, he did, his heart wasn't tied to his money, but the rich young ruler it was. The rich young ruler wasn't willing to deny himself. Let's look at the second non-negotiable. It says here, and take up your cross. Note the word and. This is, this links it. This links it to the word, back to the word must. You must deny yourself and you must take up your cross. You don't get to pick and choose. These are non-negotiable. Now the cross, we have to talk about that for a little bit because what was the cross in our audience's mind's eye? Well, the cross was a, was a cross beam that a convicted criminal would carry to his own execution. It was a horrific instrument of death that all Jewish people were familiar with. 
It was invented by the Assyrians, used periodically by the Persians. Rome got their hands on it and perfected it. That's horrible. For 500 years until Constantine abolished it in 4th century A.D. So that means they've been using, Rome has been using this for about 100 years at the time our Lord is nailed to it. It was a gruesome way to die. Listen to this description. Crucifixion in Roman times was applied mostly to slaves, disgraced soldiers, Christians, and foreigners, only very rarely to Roman citizens. Death usually occurred after six hours and up to four days and was due to the after effects of the preliminary scourging and maiming, hemorrhaging and dehydration, which caused hypovolemic shock and pain. But the most important factor was progressive asphyxia caused by impairment of respiratory movement. All the doctors in the house know what all those words mean. It's bad. Um, The resultant under-oxygenated blood exacerbated the hypovolemic shock. That is, your blood isn't circulating the way it should, obviously, if you're lacerated everywhere. The attending Roman guards could only leave the site after the victim had died and were known to precipitate death by means of deliberate fracturing of the tibia and fibula, that's your upper leg and lower leg, spear stab wounds into the heart, sharp blows to the front of the chest, or a smoking fire built at the foot of the cross to asphyxiate the victim. Horrible. It's like our modern-day electric chair. Now, Rome would... When I said it's very common, these people knew this or saw this a lot, it's because on the pathways and on the roads, uh, there was crosses everywhere, people hanging from crosses all over the place. And it was, Jerusalem was occupied by Rome, right? Israel was. So they would put these people on crosses all the time for people who would rise up and want to be out from under Roman occupation. Well, Rome was making a statement that you don't dare come against the Roman Empire, and we're going to have these little symbols everywhere of what happens when you do. So the people in Jesus' day were very familiar with this method of execution, and they were mortified at the thought. When a criminal was seen bearing his cross beam, they knew that was a dead man walking. They knew there was no turning back. And Jesus is here saying that you must take up your cross? Yes. There's a cross for me, and there's a cross for you. Here's the condition he's setting forth. To be my follower, you must be willing to give your life for my sake. You're all in, or you're not in at all. Be willing even to die. It may be by crucifixion. I love um, in the Gospel of John, we already covered this in our flock lessons, but back in John 11, verse 16, when in John 11 you have the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave, and Jesus is saying, we're going to wait a few more days and then go. But the disciples were saying, wait, they wanted to stone you. If you go there, you're going to die. And Thomas, called Didymus, he said this, let us also go so that we may die with him. He He was counting the cost. I love that. A.B. Bruce gives a helpful comment on this when he says, Thereby, he in effect declared that only such as were willing to be crucified with him should be saved by his death. 
So count the cost. Is Christ worth it? We must come to the place where we accept God's judgment on our lives, accept the fact that we deserve death, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, and you see yourself as that condemned man. This is what it means to take up your cross. You see why this is the most radical call Jesus ever gave? By the way, all Paul ever did was talk about the cross. The cross is our boast, is it not? Because it represents new life. This life is nothing. The new life is everything. New life in Christ. So we have to ask, have you done this? Have you taken up your cross? Have you died to self? Have you submitted to his lordship? If not, you cannot get in line behind him. You cannot be his disciple. The third non-negotiable, and follow me. When Jesus says, follow me, that literally means to imitate. It's a present tense verb. Let him be following me is the idea. To become a Christian, says Steve Lawson, doesn't take much of a man, but it requires all of the man. All of you follows him. You're not just making mental assent to follow him. You're not just verbally saying, I'll follow you. It's all of you. You imitate him. Note the words, follow me. This implies who you don't follow. Lawson says this, you don't follow a church, you don't follow a pastor, you don't follow a denomination, a movement. You follow the person of Christ. You don't follow your hero, your parents, your teachers, your supervisor at work. You follow Christ. Nearly 20 times Jesus called others to follow him in the Gospels. Now, you're probably thinking of the passage where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, right? And that's exactly right. What that means is Paul is so transparent that you're following him as a living, breathing example of how to follow Christ, but you're looking through him to the Lord. As soon as Paul become, or starts to not look like Christ, you don't follow Paul anymore. Your eyes are focused on the Lord. We need those earthly examples. They're necessary so we can grow. No separation between you and him. Do you want to follow him? Be reminded of his earlier statement in verse 31. Let's look at that together. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Do you think that's what they wanted for him, much less themselves? No. But Jesus says this is the requirement. But Jesus, what you're saying is a hard thing. I don't know if I'm convinced I need to do this. Well, our Lord is so compassionate, so patient with us. You'll notice that the next verses all begin with the word for. That means he's describing or giving an explanation to the previous verse. He's going to reason with us here. It's, it reminds, doesn't it remind you of Ezekiel, I think it's 118, where he says, come now, let us reason together. That's our Lord. He's going to give us some reasoning. Look at verse 35. There in your notes, this is point B. Lose your life to gain it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
All right, stop there. Is that enough to convince you you need to do this? If you wish to save your life, you'll lose it? It's the opposite of denying yourself. Saving yourself? If you, what this means is if you want to not give your life to me and if you want to not say no to all things self, then you will lose your life. If you want to live for this world and gain all you can and preserve this worldly, sinful, corrupt life to save that life, you'll lose it eternally. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what clarifies it for us is that he's meaning our earthly, temporal, temporary, mortal life. If you want to save it and hang on to it, not let go of your sin, not forsake it, you'll save it in this life, but you'll lose it eternally. You'll lose your soul. That's a really bad trade. Why not give up your life for Christ? Again, he sets the terms, not us. I'd like all of you to grab your leg right now and squeeze it. Grab your arm. What are we but flesh and bone? We have a consciousness. Can we save our own soul? We're not in charge of this, are we? Jesus is. We are mortal. We must obey him in this. A.B. Bruce gives some insight. He says life, the word life here, has a double meaning. We have a lower life that is earthly, natural, worldly, and he calls it he calls it animal happiness. And there is the higher life, that which is new, spiritually blessed, true, eternal, and renewed. That's the contrast we, we see here in Jesus' words. Uh, please turn to Matthew 10 for a second. We're going to take a look at this. Another little section of Jesus' words here. In verse 32, he says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This goes back to that persecution thing we just talked about at the beginning. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You want to have true eternal life, you, you give up this life. You give it up for him. The word lose, in the Greek, apollomi, literally means to ruin or fully destroy. The idea is to ruin or destroy your corrupt, sinful life for his sake. If you're ruining or destroying your life, it's definitely not something you're holding on to, right? Now, to illustrate this mindset, let's use a man we're familiar with, Martin Luther. After Martin Luther was saved, 
his writings on justification by faith began to be widely circulated, and he ultimately faced charges of heresy from the Roman Catholic Church. Luther knew full well that the trial could result in his death, and as he contemplated that possible outcome, this is what he wrote. And this comes from a little book by John MacArthur titled uh, Follow Me, if you want to read that. Here's what Martin Luther said. If violence is used, as it well may be, I commend my cause to God. My head is worth nothing compared to Christ. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. He was willing to shed his blood and lose his head for the sake of the truth. That's the idea behind not trying to save your life. Now look back to verse 35 again in uh, Mark 8. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That's an apparent paradox, right? Jim Elliot understood these words. Jim Elliot is, uh, he was that missionary to Ecuador, to the, I'm going to mess up the name of that tribe that's in Ecuador, but Hurani tribe or whatever. Literally means savage, that, that word in, that, in their language. You're known for being a savage. And uh, before he left, and he was 28 when he died, by the way, but when he, before he left, he said, People, people tried to get him to stay there and be a youth minister or something. And he said, you know, when I consider my home, they're well fed. I need to take the gospel elsewhere. He was convinced he needed to go elsewhere. So him, along with four other people, died uh, giving the gospel to these people. Nick, uh, uh, Nick Saint was one of them. He was the pilot. Jim Elliott said this. He's, this is one of his famous quotes. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Think about that. So what's he saying? What are you giving that you cannot keep? Your life. You're giving your earthly life away. This temporary, passing away, sinful life. It will perish someday. And what do you gain that you cannot lose? He's talking about eternal life. Eternal reward where moth and rust don't destroy or thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6. See, Jesus is always after our heart. Jim Elliot is simply saying what Jesus said, just using different language. Losing your life for my sake, you'll gain it eternally. Keep your life on this earth, you'll lose it eternally. A good example of this can also be seen in Abraham. If you go to Hebrews 11, you'll see it with Abraham. He understood this centuries before. In verse 9, he said, it says, By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise. He's, he's walking through the land of promise. As in a foreign land. He viewed that land not as his home, but as a foreign land. He was looking for, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see the contrast? Abraham, by faith, looked for that which was permanent. He wasn't setting his hope in his life on the temporary. There's a lot of people giving away their lives for things these days. Now, not necessarily their life's blood, but, but their life for sure in terms of time and money and talent, right? Um, 
God gave us all time, talent, and treasure. Uh, I recently read a biography um, uh, on Elon Musk. Fascinating book. I couldn't put it down. I think it was like 600-some pages. I I read it in about a week. It is a good book, by the way. But what you notice in this book is here's a guy who's giving away his life, like working 20 hours a day, making billions, but he's investing it all back into improving humanity. That's, that's his goal. He wants to reach Mars. He wants to make human, mankind a multiplanetary species. He's involved in rocket technology, in neural, neural science, everything. He's just got his hands delved in so many things. If he doesn't repent and believe the gospel, none of that will save him. None of that will save his soul. He's giving away his life to gain everything he can right here. God will not consider everything that he and consider other people too, like Jeff Bezos or whoever. He will not consider that worthy of eternal life. Even if you die in place of another person, in a noble act of self-sacrifice, will not cause you to open your eyes in paradise. It's salvation by faith alone, not salvation through a noble death. Right? Salvation and faith by faith alone. It's Christ's sacrifice, not any work of our own. Okay, what's the criteria of verse 35 again? I'm getting off text here a little bit. He says, for my sake and the gospels. That's the criteria. In uh, Let's flip to this passage here, Luke 9. Let's go to Luke 9 real quick. In Luke 9, uh, Luke 9 details of... Uh, parallel passage to the one we're looking at uh, from verses 23 to 27. But if you go ahead a little bit, so so eight days transpire, and then they have the transfiguration, right? And then it says another day after that, on the next day, you see this in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This is Luke 9, verse 57. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this guy heard his earlier message, was willing to contemplate everything, and said, I'll follow you. But Jesus said, are you sure? I have nowhere to lay my head. This isn't going to be easy. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. I just heard you tell that guy that there's nowhere to lay your head. I'm going to go, please let me go bury my father first so I have some money. He's waiting for the inheritance. It wasn't that his father had just died. He was waiting to get some inheritance money. But Jesus said to him, verse 60, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say farewell to those at home. His heart wasn't all in. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is not about trying to get as many people, numbers-wise, walking after him. He's saying, if you wish to save your life and you're not willing to go through the pain of self-denial and cross-bearing for my sake, you'll lose your life. All right, we're going to move to verse 36 now. 
So in your notes, point C, don't lose your invaluable soul. Jesus is going to reason with us some more. Let's talk about the soul. He helps explain verse 35. So he poses a question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the ultimate question. This is the, this is the kind of argument I really love to, to think through. The word profit literally means useful, advantageous. So, so here's the question. Is it to your advantage to gain the whole world and lose your soul? The whole world. Let's say you had the whole world. Some of us are just trying to do what we can to buy a little piece of land, an acre, an acre big. What if you had the whole world? There's some that say, estimates, if you were to add up all the, all the businesses, the land, the real estate, all the coral reef, all the precious metals, everything. This planet is worth a monetary sum of five quadrillion dollars. Let's say you did own it all. Is that, is that able to be used to purchase a soul, something immaterial? How valuable is your soul? What cost will you put on it? What cost would you put on your soul? Think of that. So if you had the whole world, what would it matter if you lost your soul in the end? This world will burn someday, but your soul lives on. It's eternal. R.C. Sproul said, Our souls are far and away the most valuable possessions we have. To lose one's soul in hell is to suffer the eternal loss of our most precious possession. This is why J.C. Ryle, he writes this in his little book, Thoughts for Young Men. He says, Do you think that you will have a more convenient time to think about these things? Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Amazing that with such a prospect of coming judgment, any man can be careless and unconcerned. Surely none are so crazy as those who are content to live unprepared to die. He sure had a way with just really hitting you upside the head with some truth, some reasoning. Jesus emphasized the soul, didn't he? When he said, do not fear those who cure the, kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew ten twenty eight. So when you think of gain, let's say you gain the whole world. What is there in this world to really gain? Well, there's money. What about stuff that's not physical? Prestige. Gain prestige. Power. Pleasure. How about applause or recognition? You could gain that. Gain it all as much as this world can offer. There's a... There's a running joke in the Ford Motor Company when you, apparently, when you progress through the ranks and you get to the upper echelons of the Ford Motor Company, the running joke is, is that when it inevitably will have an effect on your marriage and you go through a divorce, they will pay all your expenses. Isn't that horrible? The world is saying, give me more of you and I'll give you more of me. That's what the world is saying. 
But Jesus is saying, it will not profit you in the end. Gain it all and lose your soul. Losing your soul, that's, that's hell. Note, we're not talking about annihilationism. Annihilationism is the false belief or false doctrine that says your soul will just get wiped out of existence. That's not the case. Losing your soul is, is hell. Forever, consciously being tormented forever, yet and having physical pain. The new resurrected body that will be able to handle it. That is completely horrible. That's why Jesus says, fear him. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said at the end of Ecclesiastes, didn't he? Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring everything into judgment. Charles Spurgeon said, let me solemnly tell you that if your soul be a loser, however much your body may be a gainer, you have not profited in the least degree. Don't forfeit your soul. Because verse 37 says, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now Jesus now uses the language of commerce. Kind of reminds me of Ezekiel 118. Right? He's reasoning with us here. Commerce. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Let's say you did own the whole world. Could you hand it back to God? Would that be enough to purchase your soul? No. We'll get to that in a second. Now, J.C. Ryle says also in his little book, he he has some words about Satan. Here's what he says. Satan has been studying one book since creation, and that book is the heart of man. So when you think about that, when you read Job, and you come to chapter 2, what does Satan say about man in chapter 2? He says, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. All a man has, he will give for his life. I I know someone, I won't say his name, I'm related to him, he's an alcoholic. He gave up drinking because he felt his life was in danger. He gave it up, like his physical life. There was something, a condition that he got, and he he couldn't get rid of it, so he thought that was going to be the reason maybe to help him heal. And he he abandoned it. I never thought that would ever be possible. But he's fulfilling exactly what Satan says here. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. That's amazing. But what will you give for your soul? Jesus asks in verse 37, how can you buy back your soul? So to reverse verse 36, let's say you did own the whole world and everything in it, the land, the resources, the wealth, the excitements, and you handed it back to God. We just recently went to uh, an amusement park that was... So amazing. They, they generate like six million, six and a half million dollars a day just in there, just amusing people all day long. Amazing. Let's say you owned it, owned it all and you handed it back to God. You can't do that. Would God accept a planet in place of your soul to give you back your soul? That's insane. To equate a value to your invaluable soul is ludicrous. Your soul is worth more than this whole world. It's worth more than the whole universe. It's worth more than anything ever created. God will destroy all creation someday, right? Read it, 2 Peter 3.10. Your soul cannot be bought with corruptible things like silver and gold, but only with the precious, incorruptible blood of Jesus, right? That's 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct 
inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So let's be clear on this. The only way, I've said a lot about this point, but the only way to redeem or buy back your soul is the infinite value of Christ on the cross. There is no other way. So we have to ask, how do we get that provision applied to us? Well, Jesus gives us a test. In your notes, point D, what are you ashamed of? What are you ashamed of? Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the answer. The answer is you don't be ashamed of Christ and his words. That means to deny not him but yourself. This could be called the shame test. Now, what's the reason you would be ashamed of Christ and his words, right? Look at the rest of the verse. In this adulterous and sinful generation. So the reason you would be ashamed of Christ and his words is if you loved this world. If you loved the corruption and the wickedness of this world and you didn't want to deny it or be ashamed of it. You see the contrast? The contrast is deny Christ and not deny yourself in this world or deny yourself and be ashamed of this sinful world and not be ashamed of Christ. Follower of Christ can't have it both ways. So have you done this? Does this describe you? Or are you still holding on to this sinful and adulterous generation that will one day face Christ's judgment when he comes in glory? He is either Savior and Lord over you or he is judge, jury, and executioner. That's why this is such a hard-hitting message that he spoke to these people and he speaks to us now i found this comment from johnny mack pretty helpful listen to this he says admiration is not enough saying you appreciate christ and you serve christ are not enough many are on the broad road who have admired jesus but they didn't come through the narrow gate they didn't come with broken and contrite hearts they didn't come crushed under the weight of the law of god with a penitent attitude, embracing their true condition as desperate and damned and crying out for salvation from the only source, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. The Lord says, if you don't know me on my terms, I don't know you at all. If you haven't come in repentance, conviction of your own sin and abandonment of self with such desperation that you cry out for salvation and righteousness and heaven Whatever the cost, then you didn't pass through the narrow gate. You haven't come humbly, seeking forgiveness, knowing you don't deserve it. You were virtually ashamed of Jesus in his words, and you'll find him ashamed of you. This phrase, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, that's second coming language. Very similar to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, where it says Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is a warning to those who refuse to make a decision, to those who are unwilling to give up their life for Christ. Jesus is saying, consider your soul, your eternal non-dying soul. Your soul is at stake. 
And just some eight days later, just some eight days later in this account, Jesus shows them what his second coming glory looks like on the Mount of Transfiguration. So I want to conclude with three responses to this radical call. Three responses. To the believer who has already embraced Christ and is following him, be reminded of what the high cost of following him is. Settle it deep down for when the time of persecution does come, you may stand firm and be bold and not ashamed. Rejoice daily in, in proportion to your sufferings, as we, as we said earlier, as Peter told us. Rejoice daily in this great salvation bought with such a heavy price and yet is freely given. And for the newer believer, even for the newer believer, use Jesus' words here in Mark 8 to examine if you've really counted the cost and are truly following him. Self-deception is a real thing. Remember Demas? Read about Demas. Paul commends him throughout some of the ends of his letters. And then at the end of 2 Timothy, he says, Demas walked away for having loved this present world. It's a real thing. For the unbeliever, consider how much is your soul worth? How valuable is it? There's no cost you could name. No cost. But God has put a cost on your soul. It's the cost of his own son, his death, to buy your soul. Your soul lives consciously forever in heaven. It will live in heaven or in hell. In hell, it would endure endless punishment that only your sin warrants, right? Or in heaven, endless joy that only his presence will provide. How gracious is he? He provides a way. What does he say? He says, come. Come to me. Buy wine and milk without money. Salvation is a free gift. But you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Are you ready to make this kind of commitment to him? If you are, be assured he's ready to receive you. And the third response is to the counterfeit. For the counterfeit, the make-believer, I would say it's not too late. If you're still breathing, there's hope for you to be saved. It's an opportunity for you to cast off your self-deception and admit you've been playing the part without any genuine spiritual life in you. It's not performance. It's what's in the heart. Examine yourself of what it is to follow Christ, that repentance is absolutely necessary to follow Jesus. No one can follow him without abandoning their former lifestyle of sin. The words, follow me, are not just an invitation. It's an invitation. It's also a command that must be obeyed. Confess that you've not obeyed. And in a real commitment, obey. Cry out for mercy, and he will give you the power like the man in Luke 18. Thomas Watson said, What fools they are who, for a drop of pleasure, drink a sea of wrath. The most radical call Jesus ever made. There it is. To be a disciple of Christ requires the death of all things self, the taking up of your cross, and following him. I want to invite you to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit says, If today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul said, 
to the Corinthians. Life is but a vapor. We don't know what a day may bring forth, right? Tomorrow's never guaranteed. I was just talking to Shannon the other day about uh, Joel, your son, young John, and how I could remember back to when I was 12, just like it was yesterday. Life just passes by so fast. As a preacher once told me when I was in my 20s, he said, you put something else off. Don't put this off. Put something else off. And I want to give you guys something that someone I, I wish someone would have given me when I was hearing messages like this, and it is, it is this. I'm always available to talk to you if you ever want to talk about the gospel. Come to me. According to Jesus, the way to get life is to give up your life. Don't lay your head on your pillow tonight until you have the Spirit's testimony in your heart telling you that you are a child of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we know, as I was reminded of this morning, you are naturally just a constant outpouring of love. And that is the reason why you created everything is to display your character of pure love. We pray, Lord, that if there are any here who hear this message today and they don't know you, that they would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is willing with open arms to receive them. But the cost is high. May you settle it in hearts today to count the cost of what it is to follow you. And will you do this for your glory? Now may the rest of this day we just lift up to you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.